It's good to be back, and it's fantastic to see the sunshine, isn't it? Not seen that much of it this summer, so it's an extra treat to have the sunshine. So words to call us to worship. This is the place and this is the time. Here and now, God waits to break into our experience, to change our minds, to change our lives, to change our ways, to make us see the world and the whole of life in a new light, to fill us with hope, joy and certainty for the future. This is the place, as are all places, This is a time, as are all times. Here and now, let us praise God. Our opening prayer is from Papua New Guinea and with some parallel words from the UK. And I have a glamorous assistant to help me with this one. You might need to be near a microphone, I suspect. Let's pray. Our Pacific Islands are yours, O Lord, and all the seas that surround them. You made the palm trees grow, and the birds fly in the air. Our British Islands are yours, O Lord, and all the seas that surround them. You made oak, ash, and pine trees grow, and the birds fly in the air. When we see your beautiful rising sun and hear the waves splash on your shores. When we see the new moon rise and the old moon sink. When we see the sun rise over hills or city skylines. And hear the splash of waves on the river in state. When we see the new moon rise and the old moon wane. We know, O Lord, how wonderful you are. You bless your people. From truck to Tonga and beyond, you spread your caring wings. We know, O Lord, how wonderful you are. You bless our people. From John Cross to Land's End and beyond, you spread your caring wings. Even when we sail through stormy seas and fly amidst rain clouds, we know you await us with kaikai and coconut. Even when we drive on rain-soaked roads and queue at railway stations, We know you await us with bread and wine. You who turn storms into gentle winds and troubled seas into tranquil waters. You who make yams grow and bananas blossom. You who turn storms into gentle winds and troubled seas into tranquil waters. You make potatoes grow (coughs) and apples blossom. Wash our people with justice. Teach us with righteousness. Speak to us daily. Strengthen us to serve you. Amen. The reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. We would all like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our, be have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, We will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left, but some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Amen. When I went to university in London in 1981, at the age of 18, I remember a very nice chap chatting to me after the service, and he said, of course you remember the coronation, don't you? <laughs> well, no, I wasn't born. And I'm very conscious that where I start this morning, there are people here who weren't born. But I hope they will bear with me. So I think you're probably the only person who is absolutely too young to do this, but um, some other people might find it difficult. If you're old enough, can I invite you to cast your mind back 20 years and think where you would have been on a typical Sunday morning and what you'd have been doing? What was life like for you then? What were the things that were important to you? What worried you? 
And if you were a part of a church and you can remember it, what did your faith mean to you? It might seem a strange place to start, but it's quite helpful to remind ourselves that so far in Acts, we've travelled about 20 years on from when Peter met Cornelius in Caesarea. And just as there are people here who weren't born 20 years ago or can't remember what was happening 20 years ago, there would have been in those little churches in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, people who had been born in that time. And just as people that we knew and loved 20 years ago have moved away or died, so it would have been for the early churches. Some of the people who had been eyewitnesses to Jesus' life will by now have died. Some of them executed, but more typically of old age, which would have been somewhere between 40 and 60 on average in those days. They weren't old, old, old in those days. It's been a time in which the churches have become established and in which missionary endeavours have begun to spread further out from that centre in Jerusalem. So an awful lot has happened since those last words recorded of Jesus in the book of Acts to take the good news to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the ends of the earth. Paul, who we first met as a zealous young man, I guess in his 20s, some of the commentators say in his 30s, who was determined to destroy the early church, is by now an established missionary and church planter. Widely travelled, and certainly into his 40s, perhaps even into his 50s. He must have changed a lot in that time. I can't imagine that he wouldn't have. I've changed an awful lot since I was 18 and being asked if I could remember the coronation. The account we have in Acts 17 of Paul visiting Athens is loved by Christian apologists, missionaries, evangelists and advocates of interfaith dialogue, each of whom finds something in it that speaks to them. Paul, it seems, has made a deliberate choice to go to Athens, a very vibrant and diverse place, but one that he also found pretty shocking. It was a city at the heart of Greek thinking, home to many philosophers and thinkers, rich in culture and buzzing in life. Might not have been so different from a city like Glasgow. If you wanted to study then Athens was the place he chose. It was exciting, it was challenging, it was enriching. And as Paul observed, the Athenians were a deeply spiritual people. The city was full of altars and temples and shrines to a whole pantheon of deities, each one of whom had their own followers. Seemingly there was a synagogue, because Paul went there. And there were Gentile Christian believers there was a shrine to an unknown God. And there were places where people of different worldviews loved to gather together and debate. And among these were two opposing groups of devout intellectual people, the Epicureans 
and the Stoics. Now, you're probably far more educated than I am about ancient philosophies, so you know all about Epicureans and Stoics, but I needed to remind myself this week. It's really easy to caricature them, to see the Epicureans as hedonists in endless pursuit of pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And it's easy to see the Stoics as dual fatalists whose stiff upper lip mentality continues to be prized amongst equally stereotypical Britons. In actual fact, the Epicureans valued virtue, wisdom and prudence very highly as the means to true happiness. Seemingly, they quite often withdrew from society and lived quite basic lives. And the Stoics had an emphasis on reason and logic. They prized knowledge and had a strong belief in providence. They weren't just fatalists, they also had a view of providence. Both of them had a faith element to their view. The Epicureans were polytheistic, and they saw the gods as distant and uninterested in the affairs of humans. There was no life beyond this world, so the best you could do was to seek fulfilment in the here and now. The Stoics, by contrast, believed there was a divine spark in every human being. They thought that race and nationality were irrelevant, though seemingly they didn't think that your religious worldview was irrelevant. They stood for what they believed. Most of them didn't believe in any kind of afterlife, but a few envisaged the divine spark returning to its origin. It seems quite likely that a lot of energy got expended between Epicurean and Stoic scholars debating who's right, who's wrong, and why. The Book of Acts doesn't tell us very much about Paul's visit to Athens, but it seems fairly safe to deduce that he spent some time looking around, investigating the local culture, reading poetry and other books, visiting the altars and shrines. Certainly he spotted this shrine to an unknown god. And he, unlike me, was probably aware of the legend that went with it. Anybody know the legend of the unknown god in Athens? It's not just me that's thinking that. That's great. I'm so relieved. The story goes that there was a terrible plague in Athens. And the citizens thought they must have offended one of the many gods... So they started making sacrifices at every single altar they could think of. And still the plague carried on. A Cretan called Epimiades, I get hard words as well, Fiona. Epimiades told them to starve some sheep overnight and then release them on the Areopagus, also called Mars Hill, to graze. If any of the sheep, rather than feeding, lay down, this was the place to offer a sacrifice to the unknown god to stop the plague. Some versions of the story say there were seven sheep who lay down rather than feeding, and these seven sheep were sacrificed on seven altars, and the plague stopped. Well, whether that's a true story or whether it's just a legend or whatever, there was certainly at least one altar to the unknown god that Paul saw and wondered about. It seems to me that in Paul, 
we get a good model for our own assuming about people of other cultures and worldviews and how we might engage with them. We mustn't just think, well, of course, we will understand them and they will understand us because different worldviews have different assumptions within them. Sometimes the same word means different things to different people. You get a group of physicists and a group of engineers together, they don't even understand each other. So different worldviews don't stand a chance. Neither was we assume naively or arrogantly that the differences don't matter. Because actually, they do. We see that Paul didn't rush into things when he arrived in Athens. First of all, he went to the synagogue, a place where he could meet people with a shared heritage and shared beliefs. It's kind of a, a safe place to go. And I guess it's a thing a lot of us do when we move to a new place, is we try and find somewhere to worship where we will feel reasonably comfortable. Then he met with the Gentile believers, people that were like those he'd met elsewhere on his travels, monotheists, who could understand and probably accept what he talked about Christ. Only once those relationships were established did he go out into the marketplace, the place where the local citizens would meet to discuss ideas, and began to talk with anybody who came along who might have a different worldview. I wonder, is there some sort of order there that we might want to consider in the relationships that we build? Firstly, to build really strong links with those who share our heritage, whether that is other Baptists or other British people. And then to share with those who share our worldview, other Christians, including other nationalities. Even as I say that, I think well, we're quite a multinational church, so we've already done some of that anyway. But is that where we start? By building the relationships with those who share our beliefs, and perhaps within that our traditions, and then move on to engage with those of other faiths or none. It seems to me that it was from a secure understanding of his own heritage and his own faith that Paul moved on out into new cultures. Paul being Paul, he gets into some pretty high-powered conversations with Epicurean and Stoic teachers. And the people start talking about what he's saying. Some of them say, oh, he's just a babbler. He's just a picker-up of scraps. He's just peddling new ideas. He hasn't even thought about it. It's just a nutcase. Others say, well, no, 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 he's not a nutcase, actually. He's a very dangerous heretic. He's talking about two foreign gods, one of them called Jesus, and one of them called Anastasis, the Greek word for resurrection. Very similar word to the name Anastasia. Was he peddling two new gods, one male, one female? They didn't understand, but they thought what he said was dangerous. In an encounter that the educated Greeks would recognise as paralleling the trial of Socrates, one of their own philosophers, Paul is summoned by the people the, who meet on Mars Hill, who are also called the Areopagus, to give an account of himself. And what we have in this chapter is Paul's apologetic, his defence of his faith position. It's concise, it's profound, and it reflects the effort that he's put in to learning about the Athenian culture and 
his firm commitment to what he believes to be true. He's respectful to his hearers. He acknowledges their sincerity and the shared quest for truth and understanding. Far from rubbishing their beliefs, Paul begins by recognising their integrity and their spirituality. He doesn't water down what he believes and he's not defensive about it. But he's not aggressive or dismissive. Doesn't sound quite so much like the man who went round and held the coats when Stephen was executed. In my experience, there are two extreme ends of the ways that Christians react when they are talking with people of other faiths or no faith. And I actually think that both of these extremes is unhelpful and ultimately is dishonouring to God. You may disagree, that's your prerogative, but I think they're unhelpful. At one extreme, there is the view that says all religions are equal and they're effectively just a different path up the same mountain. And the problem with that is it ignores some fundamental differences in understandings that actually I think is quite disrespectful to other worldviews. For somebody like a Buddhist or a Hindu who sees life as cyclic, as the whole aim as breaking out of that cycle, it's very disrespectful to say, well, it doesn't matter, it's not important, the fact that you think that and we think you live once. Actually, those differences do matter. So to say the differences don't matter, that it's all okay as long as we're nice to each other, I'm not sure that that's actually helpful. And then there is the other extreme that says there is only one valid religion, and that is Christianity, and every other faith is completely false, even Judaism. It denies things that are commonly good in all faiths and all cultures. I have heard people talk about the false god of the Jews. I'm not quite sure that says about Jesus, really, because Jesus worshipped the false god of the Jews. There is some good and some truth that goes beyond all faiths. I firmly believe that. Things like love one another as you love yourselves. Do unto others as you would be done unto. This goes through all faiths and beyond any faiths. I guess, like a lot of people, I sit somewhere in the middle of that. And I think here, what we see in Paul, is some sort of a middle view. He's not rubbishing what they believe, but nor is he saying it doesn't matter what you believe. He can see a lot that is good in Epicurean and Stoic worldviews. The search for truth, the search for understanding, the prizing of virtue, the belief in the divine, that is good. But he also knows what he believes, and he wants them to understand and ultimately to share that belief. The fact is that all of us, whether we say all religions are equal or the only true religion in any sense is Christianity or somewhere between, we all think we're right. Everybody thinks they're right. I met a Baha'i woman once, lovely woman, And the Baha'i faith says that all faiths are equal. And then she said to me, but then I'm saying I'm right and you're wrong, aren't I? So actually we're no better and no worse than anybody else. Everybody, whatever their faith perspective thinks, we're the one that's right. 
One of the challenges of a true interfaith dialogue is you need to be firmly committed to that perspective that you have and that it has something unique that the others don't. You have to be sure what you believe in order to engage properly with other people. And you find that if you talk to people of other faiths, they really don't want Christians to make it all wishy-washy, to water it down. They want us to stand up for what we believe. They want to hear what we honestly believe about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, about his uniqueness. So what does Paul do? He starts off with a positive. He acknowledges the devotion and piety of the Athenians and the quest for truth. He finds a connecting point in the unknown God and the implicit search for a deity beyond their knowledge or comprehension. The God for whom, as in the version Fiona read for us, they are groping. They are groping for this God. They're reaching out to try and find this God and they can't quite get there. Using some Greek poetry and an understanding, especially of Stoicism, Paul goes on to explain who this God is that they are groping for. The God who created all things, all people, all nations. The God who doesn't need shrines or altars or images. That's the common thing that they have. And then he moves on to say, and this is what it means, this is how I understand it, that Jesus, whom God raised from the death, is the new bit. This is the missing bit of your jigsaw. Perhaps there's a model for us when we get engaged with people of another faith or no faith, to actually engage with something of their culture and understand it before we start talking. <coughs> Build on a proper relationship, a sense of value, and then talk about what we think is unique. As Paul reaches his conclusion, he gets three responses. Derision, curiosity, and acceptance. We don't get told how many people fell into each of those categories. But we know that they were there. And if we're brave enough to share our faith with other people, we have to expect that those three are possible for us. We might get laughed at or dismissed as nutcases. To be honest, I've very rarely found that to be the case. I've met a few nutcases out there on street corners, saying things about their faith. But when I talk to people about faith, very rarely have people told me they thought was nutty. Misguided, maybe, but nutty not. Or they might be curious. If we're honest, they might be curious. Why do sensible people like you believe this stuff that I don't believe? That's been more my experience, is people think, well, you're reasonably intelligent, and you've got a degree in engineering and you still believe it so that's going to be worth something worth thinking about or people might be convinced and come to faith and we think that's the end but actually it's not because there's a whole lot of responsibility in supporting people and encouraging them to grow in faith if they come to faith so what does all that mean for us living here in and around Glasgow what does it mean when we meet people every day from different cultures? What should we be doing to share the gospel in this vibrant, diverse part of a multicultural city? 
can't do everything, but surely we can do something. And I have a suspicion that maybe the challenge is not the interfaith arena, not even the multi-ethnic arena, because we are already quite multi-ethnic, but actually Western secularism that is the norm for most of the people that we meet each day. I wonder how much, if we're honest, we live in a kind of a Christian bubble and how much we really understand the world around us. Are we credible witnesses able to find the connecting points or are we narrow isolationists? I wonder what you watch on television. I wonder what you read. Do you listen to? How much do we just stick with what's nice and safe and obviously Christian? And how much do we get to understand what's going on around us? So just to end, because I've talked far too long, three action points that I think are important for each one of us. Firstly, we need to be confident in what we believe, to be clear what is essential and what is non-negotiable, and to be clear what actually is nice and peripheral. Secondly, we need to be willing to engage seriously and openly with other worldviews, not criticising, but understanding, not disapproving, but seeking out the connection points. And lastly, the hard one, we have to do it. We have to risk being rejected, risk being laughed at, accept the challenge of curiosity and deep questioning, and to hope for the delight of acceptance and belief. Paul was at least 40, maybe in his 50s when he went to Athens. But he was equipped to engage with other cultures. And so too can we be. You might want to turn to number 69 for our prayers of intercession, although it's only two words, so you may not. We will be singing a Kyrie to a Ukrainian setting, and we will sing it through once, just to remind ourselves of it. Then I will lead us in prayer, and the, the cue to sing it within the prayer will be the words, Lord, have mercy. But let's just sing it through once first to remind ourselves how it goes. Pray for a world of rich diversity and impoverished humanity. Merciful God, where we have failed to be faithful disciples of Jesus, standing firm for truth and justice and love, forgive us. Merciful God, 
where we have failed to see the good in others, denied your love, justice and truth expressed through them. Forgive us. Merciful God, where we have failed to engage with the other through fear, ignorance, arrogance or indifference, forgive us. Lord, have mercy. Merciful God, we pray for those who, this day, are grieving or mourning, that they would be comforted. Merciful God, we pray for those who, this day, are sick or in pain, that they would find release. Merciful God, we pray for those who, this day, Seek only death, that they would find life. Lord, have mercy. they would find peace. Merciful God, we pray for those who, this day, are victims of abuse, that they would find safety. Merciful God, we pray for those who, this day, will harm others, that they would find the help to cease. Lord, have mercy. Pray for those who, this day, will go hungry, that they would be fed. Merciful God, we pray for those who, this day, will go naked, that they will be clothed. Merciful God, we pray for those who, this day, will be homeless, that they will find shelter. Lord, have mercy.
Merciful God, we pray this day for people and situations that weigh heavily on our hearts, either naming them aloud or in the silence. Merciful God, as we grope towards the light of your love through the darkness of a disordered world, remind us that you, in grace, reach for us even before we seek you. Fold us in your love and strengthen us for service, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Let's bless each other in the words of the grace. But if your first language is not English, then please say it in your first language so that we embrace the culture of the world. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.